Acts 5, starting in verse 1. It's really the second sermon we are going to hear on this text. I'm just finishing a sermon I did not finish last week. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word today, that your spirit would examine us through your word, that we would be a people who take seriously the holiness of our God, that we would see our sin as offensive as it is, as weighty, that we would see how Satan schemes to deceive your church and how you remedy that scheme, how you step in and bring judgment and discipline for the good of your church and the glory of your name. We pray as we consider this text that you would bring to salvation those who do not know your son. We pray that for those believers who are straying, who are wandering, who are hardening their hearts and not listening to the voice of our Lord, that they would be brought to repentance. We pray for those of us believers who are walking with you in repentance, Father, that we would be greatly encouraged, even from hard words, because we know who our Father is and what you want for us and for your own name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week I spoke of Satan's devices or, or Satan's schemes is another word, to undermine the church. I I talked about how Satan um, attacked the church from the outside. We saw that already in Acts chapter 4. He was attacking the church from without through persecution, and he was attacking the church in this case with Ananias Sapphira from within by sin happening among the members. And our passage last week and today is about Satan's attack from within, the attack that he brought 
by filling the heart of Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, with deceitful hypocrisy. They had lied to the church, and in doing so, they had lied to the Holy Spirit, to God, to the Lord. And last week, I said that we, could, we would look at how, as I talked about the way, the schemes of Satan that we see here, I said that we are going to look at how God remedies Satan's schemes or devices here. Now, I want you to understand, this is not a comprehensive treatment of how God remedies Satan's devices in all of Scripture. This is a treatment today of how God remedies Satan's devices in this instance, and to some degree, with relationship to it, how he remedies Satan's schemes in the life of the church through discipline and judgment. That's all I'm focusing on today. Discord and divisiveness was happening in the church through the sin of two, two of its members, and to remedy this situation, God stepped in. Now, in a very direct, immediate way. I want to I wanna warn you um, as we approach this, this, this may be hard to hear. Our culture has redefined love. And we've redefined love in such a manner that for God to be loving is for God to be generally affirming of me and what I want. He is a God who tolerates sin because he's a God of love. We confess. He may even endorse your sin if you feel good about it. If you feel bad about it, he's happy to forgive you. If you feel good about it, he's happy to endorse it. He certainly isn't a God who's holy, nor just. He definitely isn't a God who's angry, nor full of wrath. Thus we have a gospel in which Jesus has come to show us God's affirmation of us. Yeah, Jesus will pay for the sins you feel bad about, but he's also there to affirm you for the sins you feel good about. Oh yes, Jesus does bring me some forgiveness, but just for the stuff I feel really bad about. Not for the stuff I feel good about. God made me that way. Why would he condemn me? As a result of our contemporary gospel, we end up with believing we have license to sin. We just have this freedom now to sin. It frees people, really, in our minds from the eternal consequences of sin so that they can go on living however they want. Thus, the idea that God would eternally condemn professing Christians or that God would discipline or temporarily judge, temporarily judge actual Christians is generally culturally foreign and hard for us to hear. That's what I want you to hear. It's hard. So when the warnings of Scripture come to us regarding God's judgment, we generally don't shudder at them. Do you know that? It's not like we shudder in fear, oh, God's going to judge, God's going to disappoint. We don't. We don't generally shudder. Here's what we think. Well, that's interesting. What happened to Ananias the fire when God struck them dead? That's interesting. You know, that's a bygone era. You might, um, you know, it, it doesn't apply today. Or, or we may even assert, well, this is a nice story, but it isn't true. Further, we've created a Christian life which is radically individualistic. Thus, we have no need for the church. No need for it. We have even less use for church authority. And you may, 
you may as well completely forget about church discipline. Who is anyone to tell me how to live my Christian life? Or to judge me for my sin? How can anyone else declare me a believer? They don't know me. They don't know my heart. God is my judge. To which I want to say, yes, he is. And I'm not sure why declaring that gives you much comfort. I, I would much rather you be my judge. You can't eternally condemn my soul to hell. At least in one sense. In another sense, I understand God is an impartial and fair and just judge. So I set the table on this as we jump back into our passage with Ananias and Sapphira because God's remedy for Satan's device may seem harsh to us. It may seem shocking or completely foreign or unrealistic to us. Especially those of us who live in a very, um, if you will, which is all of us, a very naturalistic kind of world. A world in which we don't see God immediately intervening. A world in which we look for a physical cause and explanation for everything that happens. How does God respond to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, and how does that response remedy Satan's device? God deals with their sin, don't you hear this, through immediate judgment. That's how he does it. He responds through immediate judgment. Look at Acts 5 and verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That means he died. Fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. I want you to hear that. There's God's judgment, immediate. Ananias commits deceitful hypocrisy in his heart and then with his actions and lies to the church about it, the apostles about it, i.e. the Lord about it, and is struck down dead immediately. Now, we don't know how the Lord did this, whether he did this through natural causation of a heart attack or through supernatural action just striking him dead. What we know is the emphasis in Luke here in Acts, as Luke is emphasizing here in Acts, is clearly on the fact that this was the immediate judgment of God that brought about his death. That's what we know. And that the response to that is the church was all fearing. They were in fear. Sorry, look at verse 9. As we, Sapphira comes in a few hours later, not knowing her husband's been buried, but Peter said to her, to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the, fear of, excuse me, the feet of those who buried your husband, that's the first time she heard her husband died, is now buried, who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So here comes a prophetic word from Peter with regard to Sapphira, you're going to die right now. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The Lord intervened immediately, directly, and judged her with death. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, notice that again, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. One of God's remedies, one of God's remedies, or, or if, if you, 
will cures for Satan's devices is judgment and discipline. And this judgment remedied this situation as it dealt with Ananias Sapphira by removing two sinful members of the church body and putting fear into the whole church not to repeat their sin. The judgment was for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Now God's judgment and discipline, which is for our good and his glory, I want you to hear that, God's judgment and discipline, which is for our good and his glory, comes really in three primary ways, and that's what I want to get at today. The three primary ways it comes. One, it comes through immediate or direct judgment. It can come. It may come. It doesn't always come in, one, in these, but it may come through immediate judgment. It may come through church discipline, which is kind of a mediated judgment, if you will. It goes through other people. Church discipline, and it can come through general suffering or persecution. You guys hear that? Immediate judgment, church discipline, general suffering, and persecution. Let's look at the first one, immediate judgment. God brings immediate judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. That's the most obvious one in this text. And the question always arises, are they believers? Were were Ananias and Sapphira saved? And here's my answer. I don't know. And why don't I know? Because Luke doesn't tell me. Doesn't tell me. It's nowhere in that text. Clearly, they're professing Christians. Clearly, they are baptized members of the church. But are they saved? Were they real believers? I don't know. I know that's a struggle for you to hear. You don't know either. Luke didn't care to tell you. They could be believers. The Lord does at times, I want you to hear this, they could be believers. The Lord does at times level immediate temporal judgment on real believers. Did you know that? There are stories in Scripture where it seems the Lord has taken out, physically killed, actual believers. Let me give you one direct example. Look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. Now this may throw you a bit because we don't tend to take the Lord's Supper or communion particularly seriously, do we? We we almost see it in such a way that the kids come in from Sunday school and think, oh, it's adult snack time now. But it's not. The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances or sacraments that Christ gave to his church. It is a means of grace by which the Spirit works in us powerfully to grow us in grace. And it is a serious matter. It is a serious matter. It isn't something actually to partake of lightly. In fact, look, look at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11 as we see this. But in the following instructions, Paul's been breaking down, so you know in the letter to Corinth from chapter 7 and following, he's answering questions they had and and giving them some instructions. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Incidentally, for Paul to declare that about your church worship services is about as bad as it gets. For the Apostle Paul to say, when you gather together for worship, it's actually to your detriment. That's pretty strong language. 
This church at Corinth is a mess. In fact, it's such a sinful mess. Corinth was such a bastion of sexual sin. The city of Corinth. It was so parallel to some degree to the the state of California that one pastor mentioned that we could rename this book First Californian. This is a mess Corinth is in. And look what happens here. Verse 18, for in the first place, why, one of the reasons they're a mess is the disunity in the body. Hear this. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Look at verse 20. I'm not going to address every text here. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What's he saying? The believers are coming together. And some of the believers are, they would generally combine, so you know, the love feast, which is a meal they had with the Lord's Supper, which is what we take as Lord's Supper. They would generally combine those things together as they came together as a body and take them together so they would have a whole meal involved with it and then they would take the Lord's Supper. And what was happening was apparently as they were coming together for this occasion, some of the believers were actually eating and consuming so much alcohol that they were pressing out other believers, generally the poor believers, from having any access access to food or drink. They were so self-obsessed so selfish that they weren't considering other believers as they came to the Lord's table. They were causing division in the body. Now what was causing division in the body? Selfishness. It's always what causes division in the body. Always. This is one particular example of how division might be caused in the body by selfishness. There are other ways division in the body might be caused by selfishness. This is one example at the love feast, at the Lord's Supper. Look, he goes on to give these instructions we read. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night was betrayed took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Now what's he doing? He's laying out the nature of communion. If you understand what the Lord Jesus has done for you and who you now are in him and the fact that you're united to him and one another, you will stop this divisive behavior, this selfish behavior. Because you'll prefer the other over yourself just as Jesus preferred you over himself. Verse 28, oh, verse 27, let's skip down there. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. This doesn't just mean an unbeliever. This means a believer or a professing believer anyway, and my guess is probably an actual believer, who is in the body causing disunity and then participating in the Lord's Supper as if they're not, as if they're entitled to it, without any regard for their own sin and divisiveness. They're not recognizing who Jesus really is and what he's done in the way they live out their lives. I'll prove that out in a second here. In a worthy manner, we're guilty of the bo- concerning the body 
and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I mean, you wonder, do we examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what's that judgment he's eating and drinking on himself? Pay attention to this, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You hear that? Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In other words, what Paul is saying is there are members of this Corinthian church who have died, if you will, prematurely because they have participated in the Lord's Supper in a spirit of divisiveness, selfishness, without discerning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in some way, they are misunderstanding the gospel, making it about themselves, running over their neighbor, their brother, and causing division in the church, and the Lord is actually taking some of them out physically. Physically. Now, I know we're, we're such materialists, it's hard for us to imagine that the Lord might give you a sickness or disease because, and kill you with it because of your sin, as judgment. But it clearly happens in Scripture. In fact, in James 5, we're told that when, when, the elders, when someone's sick, they, all, they gather the elders together to pray for them, and what does it tell us? To ask them if there's any unrepentant sin, you know, essentially in their lives that might be causing this illness. Now, it's always awkward as elders when you come to meet with somebody who wants prayer to, to launch off with, well, so is there any unconfessed sin in your life? It's a little bit awkward, but listen, we're always coming at it saying, hey, we're not saying that this illness is due to sin at all. However, we are wanting to be faithful to the word of God that it may be possible. So if you have anything you need to confess, confess it. Let's pray. How do I know these are believers? Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examined ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In other words, the Lord is judging these people, even with sickness and death, in their sin, so that they won't be condemned to hell. It's like a mercy killing. <laughs> All right? Taking you out before apostasy sets in. The Lord will keep you to the end. This may be the way he does it. He'll save you to the uttermost. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. So God can judge you immediately and physically kill you for your sin. He has and he will, and apparently he can do it to protect you from your own condemnation. Thus he does it for your own good and his own glory. It may have been that Ananias and Sapphira were saved and God knew the road they were going down and he intervened not just for the sake of the church but for the sake of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know. 
Were Ananias and Sapphira true believers? I don't know. Here's what I know from Scripture. Ananias and Sapphira were not the first to experience this kind of immediate judgment, and they aren't the last. And I guess the message that Luke wants us to hear is be warned, church. Be warned. The Lord is not to be trifled with. And the Lord does not take sin lightly, particularly sin that disrupts the unity of his church and stains the purity of his bride. And while we're on this topic, I think it's important that we take this opportunity to mention that God does not only judge and discipline sin immediately, at times God will judge and discipline sin through what we call church discipline. So there is an immediate judgment that can come. I don't know how often it comes. But there is also the discipline of, or judgment of church discipline, what some people might call excommunication. In other words, you're removed from communion the elements. You're no longer a member of the body of Christ. You're removed from being a member. Church discipline and excommunication. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I told you the context of this church, this city, is horrific, and this church is a mess as well. But I want you to see judgment that's really immediate, uh, is really mediated, sorry, through the church. Verse 1. It is actually reported, among, reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Porneia, from, the word, from which we get the word pornography. There's all kinds of sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. In other words, here's a man who's either sleeping with his father's wife or taking his father's wife as concubine, like his, what you might call a stepmom. He's having a sexual affair with his father's wife, to which we all rightly go, ew, right? And so do the pagans. That's what he's saying. This sin even grosses out the unbelievers out there in Corinth. And you have it. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? What's he talking about? Aren't you, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? It seems to be that Cor the Corinthian church is holding themselves up as a model of graciousness. They're rejoicing in their graciousness. They'd come to believe that the gospel gave a license to sin, and thus they were self-congratulatory regarding their graciousness and countenancing such sin in the fellowship. Look, we, we accept everyone here. Even those who profess to be believers and are baptized believers, we come one, come all to the table. Come one, come all to membership. You don't need to repent of your sin. It doesn't matter how grossly unrepentant you are. Just come on in because Look how gracious we are. And Paul says they ought to be mourning. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, remove them from the membership. Look at verse 13. God judges those who outside, in other words, those outside are the, the, those who are not members of your church, the unbelieving world out there. God judges those outside 
purge the evil person from among you or expel the immoral brother. When I was a pastor um, at a previous church, we did a theme every year, and we were on a pastor's retreat, and we were doing a theme that year, and I said, we should do this one, expel the immoral brother. It was our theme for the year. But we didn't think it was going to draw very many people, so we didn't do it. All right. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. That's really strong language, isn't it? Look at what he goes on to say in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This man is living in unrepentant, open sin by having as some kind of, um, committing some kind of sexual immorality with his father's wife. And Paul says, I've leveled judgment on him already. When you are assembled, when the church gathers in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. What do you do when you come together as a church with regard to this brother? You don't rejoice in how gracious you are. You're not loving that brother at all. You're not loving and honoring Christ's church at all. You don't care about the name of the Lord at all. When you come together as assembly, you need to pronounce judgment on that brother and expel him from the body. You need to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's strong language, isn't it? It sounds, it harkens back to sort of what the Lord seems to have done almost with Job, though Job was not in sin. He seems to have said to Satan, okay, you can destroy his body, but, you know, you can only go so far, and obviously God eventually restores Job. Don't get me wrong, Job is not in any sin, but it seems to be a similar kind of thing in this sense, that you as a church are saying, we're delivering you over to Satan, we're putting you out of the body of Christ, and we're even prayerful that Satan will do whatever is necessary to you physically to bring you to salvation, to keep you from being eternally lost. Why? You're delivering over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We, we had to do this once in the church. Well, we've, we've done, I think, three or four excommunications in the history of the church. We never like to do them. We, we are generally as patient as we possibly can be in the church discipline process. Um, in fact, it's probably true that there isn't an elder meeting that passes without a closed session in which some member of the body is in some state of church discipline. We don't enjoy that, and we are always working diligently to keep it from coming to this point. Always. We never want to get to this point. Sometimes we're probably too patient. But we're trying to be patient and work them through because when we come to this point, which we've had to do three times it, or four times, something like that, it becomes, becomes very difficult. We, the first time we did it, we put out a man who was about 30 years old and otherwise good health. He was pursuing the children in our church and other churches. He had a false identity. It was a big mess. He lied to us for years. We put him out of the church. We prayed that God would turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his soul might be saved. And, and that week, he had a massive stroke as a 30-year-old. He was hospitalized. 
So we sent one of the elders there um, to call him to repentance. Um, and, 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 I mean, obviously to care for him as well. And, and he, he wouldn't repent and had another massive stroke. He has to be cared for to this day. Still hasn't repented, though. And I keep praying, Satan, to the Lord, have Satan do whatever it takes. Let him do whatever it takes to bring this brother to salvation. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. In other words, he's not saying you, you don't associate with sexually immoral, i.e. unbelievers. Because what? Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would have to do what? You'd need to go out of the world. You'd have to live on the moon or something if you weren't going to associate with any of those people. Okay, what, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Listen, if someone bears the name of brother, they're a professing Christian, and they are living in unrepentant sin, sexual sin, financial greed. A reviler is someone who's stoking um, division in the body. They're constantly gossiping, constantly speaking down about the leaders of the church. Constantly speaking down about other members of the church. A drunkard, you guys know what that is. Or a swindler, someone steals. Not even to eat with such a one. Don't associate, don't even eat with them. Um, what does this mean? It's talking about a kind of intimate, close fellowship. It doesn't mean don't say hello to them on the street. It doesn't mean don't be, I mean, it doesn't mean be unkind to them. What it means is you don't enter into those things that are intimate, close fellowship with them. We excommunicate them from the body. They are no longer members. They're no longer given the benefits of membership in the church. And then we cut off much of the close fellowship we once had. It doesn't mean shun them altogether. The language here is talking about when you invited someone into your home for a meal, you were in some way approving of and entering into close, intimate fellowship with that person. That's why in 3 John, for example, when he says, don't even give a false teacher a greeting in the marketplace, don't give them, like, invite them into your house, because when you greeted someone in that culture in the marketplace, you were endorsing that teacher. When you brought them into your house for a meal, you were endorsing that teacher. So he's saying, don't do anything that would endorse them, that would give the opinion to others that that guy's one of you. And that's what he's saying here, essentially. Now, how does that carry out in a culture? I don't know. I'm not going to work at all this morning. Here's the point. In our culture, um, and, and across every culture, this, the point is true. Do not live with that person in such a way that you give the impression to the world that that person is part of your church, part of the family of Christ. Don't live in such a way with them that you, that you give that impression to the world. By the way, that doesn't mean don't be friendly to them because you don't live with unbelievers in such a way that you give the impression that they're part of the church of Christ, do you? You don't live them with them in that way. But you're still kind to them, aren't you? 
It says, purge no evil person from among you. Jesus would go to a house to have meal with an unbelieving sinner, wouldn't he? He would. And there, there's in some sense, in a way, um, a kind of grace that's being shown for the sake of their salvation. But Paul says, once that person starts professing to be a believer, if they are unrepentantly sinning, and this isn't you making an individual judgment, this is the church making a judgment. If they're unrepentantly sinning and they're excommunicated from the church, then you better not live with them in that way anymore like they're part of the church. Because the Lord takes sin seriously and we as a church must do the same. It's hard. It's hard. But frankly, seeing someone snatched from the destructive and damning influence of sin is worth all the pain involved. But let me take one more step. Church discipline is not only for the good of the one being disciplined. Church discipline is good for the church in the same way that judgment, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira was good for the church. Church discipline strikes fear of sin, fear of God's judgment, into the church. How do I know that? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll see church discipline with regard to leaders in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. After it talks about honoring the elders and paying them if they're working at it full time, etc., in verses 17 and 18, in verse 19 of 1 Timothy 5, Paul says this, do not admit a charge against an elder. By admit a charge against an elder, it means don't even entertain a conversation about an elder or pastor of your church, a kind of conversation that is in some way charging that elder or pastor with sin. Don't even entertain the conversation except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, there are two or three people who have also witnessed this sin in the pastor. Now you can entertain the conversation, but you better not entertain it outside of that. You guys follow? Because now you're going to need to confront him. Uh, and and I, I want you to understand the guardrail against this. The reason you don't entertain the conversation is because people easily, quickly believe gossip spread about leaders, particularly leaders who hold up the word of God and hold up high standards. People quickly and easily believe that gossip. That gossip spreads from their mouth all too quickly, and that gossip is eaten up by people all too quickly. If you don't believe that, let me tell you one brief story. Jeff Gutierrez, who goes to our church, was hanging out with a friend. Jeff's been coming to Deeper every Sunday, uh, or Friday morning for years. And um, he had a friend who told him, he said, I, I, I know your pastor, Chad Vegas. I know him. You know, essentially the friend was telling him, he's a really angry guy. And Jeff's like, I don't, I don't see him being angry. I know why he's so angry. Jeff says, well, why is he so angry? Because he has a wooden leg. Jeff says, no, no, I see him in shorts. He doesn't have a wooden leg. I know him. I know he has a wooden leg, and that makes him angry. First of all, who has a wooden leg? That's the first question, right? We are not in that time period any longer. <laughs> yeah. But even, yeah, the pirate pastor of Bakersfield. But even, even, even beyond that, he... Even beyond that, 
This guy claims to know me, to know something about me, not only something about the state of my legs, but he also knows something about the state of my heart. And he clearly has never seen me before. He's clearly never had a conversation or interacted with me, or else he would know, good and well, I do not have any wooden legs. Yet, he, and I'm sure some others, had gossiped about that and believed it. That's what I'm saying. Thus the guardrail. Don't even entertain a conversation about sin, a charging sin to an elder or pastor without two or three witnesses, without the evidence of that. Because it, Satan wants to take down the church, and the best way to do it is to take down the shepherds. Take down the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter And then he goes on, once you do have enough evidence, two or three witnesses, but he goes on to say, as for those, in other words, you've come to the elder now because two or three witnesses have, have, have evidence or the pastor, you come to him, and as for those pastors who then persist in sin, in other words, as you've come to them and brought the charges before them, they don't repent, they persist in sin, they are not repentant, rebuke them. In the presence of all. So you're coming, two or three witnesses, you're rebuking the pastor, if you will, privately. If he persists in the sin, you're then rebuking him in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. So that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, one of the reasons for God's immediate judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, one of the reasons for God's for church discipline is so that the rest may stand in fear to cause fear in the church. Now you might say, I, I hate fear. Isn't fear, fear is always bad, right? Isn't it fear always bad? Why talk about fear being good for the church? Well, let me say this. Fear is not always bad. Fear can be very good for you. Listen, fear keeps me from putting my hand in the fire. Fear keeps me from walking out in the middle of the freeway. Fear is good. Yes, does fear, is there a bad fear? Yes, but there is a good fear. It's fear that can be used to keep me from walking into, into life-destroying and eternally condemning apostasy and sin. But doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Yes, but go read the context of 1 John 4. Knowing the perfect love of God in Christ for you does cast out fear of condemnation on the day of judgment. And if you know the perfect love of God in Christ for you, then you will walk in repentance, you will walk in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of final judgment, but reverence for him, knowing he's not to be trifled with, knowing he takes sin seriously, perhaps deadly seriously. And if you know and trust the gospel, you know the Lord is close, is keeping you close, by his grace, and you know that you cannot and should not trust your own heart. What you ultimately are afraid of is two things, your heart and God's response in discipline and judgment to your sinful heart. We should not lack confidence in the Lord's determination and ability to save us to the uttermost. should not lack confidence in that, but we should lack confidence in our own hearts. Sovereign grace, we're commanded to discipline unrepentantly sinning members so that others may stand in fear. 
Fear of what? Fear of my own heart? Fear of the Lord's judgment? Fear of my own propensity to wander away from the Lord in sin and face his discipline. Fear that if I cease listening to God's voice in his word, then I may wander away completely, commit apostasy, and show that I was never in Christ in the first place. We know that's true. It's why we sing, Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Sovereign Grace, we're a church that takes seriously the responsibility of church discipline. There is rarely an elder meeting that goes by that we don't have a closed session dealing with it. We don't enjoy it. But I can't even begin to tell you how many church members have been saved from walking off the cliff into total personal destruction and perhaps complete apostasy and eternal judgment by the Lord using the means of church discipline to keep them. So the Lord will keep us, right? But he uses means to that end. Sometimes church discipline is that means. Sometimes immediate judgment might be that means. Third point today, general suffering and persecution. And I'm going to try to make this one really fast because my first points took too long. General suffering and persecution. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Verse 3, after talking about Jesus who despised the shame of the cross, is seated at the right hand of God, Verse 3, we're told this, Consider him, that's Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Grow weary or faint-hearted in what? In your struggle against sin. In, look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yes, you suffered. Yes, you've been persecuted. But consider Christ who suffered and was persecuted to the point of shedding blood. You haven't gotten there. So don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You hear that? The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So the reason you undergo this discipline in the first place is because your father loves you and has received you. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems, seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the truth, isn't it? But look what he says next. But, he, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And here's the therefore. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. God disciplines you for your good and his glory and because he loves you as your father. 
And your response to that is what? Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Don't give up in your battle against sin. There is no passivity here. This isn't let go and let God and hopefully he just changes me passively. This is actively work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You strive, you battle. Don't let discouragement cause you to give up. Look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Is that what you do in the body of Christ? Notice that every time we look at these discipline passages, this idea of peace or unity comes up. Are you striving for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Just a striving for holiness and for peace. See to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. In other words, cast yourself on the grace of God. Cast yourself on his grace. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. In other words, man, don't let bitterness defile you. Don't let it wreck your heart. Look what he goes on and says, that no one's sexually immoral or unholy. No one is sexually immoral and holy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't become defiled by sexual morality. Don't become defiled by bitterness. Here's the thing that's true. Sexual morality will harden your heart. You'll be defiled by it. Bitterness will harden your heart. Let a root of bitterness spring up. It will choke out life. Whenever I see people start to walk away from the Lord, I generally have two questions. They start to get hardened toward the Lord. Generally, I have two questions. One, are you participating in any sexual immorality? Because they almost always are. And two, or two, if you're not that, who are you bitter toward? Where is there a division in your life? Because it generally comes down to one of those two things. I'm not saying other sin doesn't lead there, but it's generally there. Listen, I don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were saved, but this I do know. The church is warned by this passage. Be warned, church. Wake up, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, redouble your efforts to strive for peace in the church and holiness in your own life. Cast yourself upon the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Don't let bitterness or sexual morality defile you and choke out spiritual life in you. Be warned, church. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence in him to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, pursue holiness. Strive hard for it. Employ the God-given means of grace. Read your Bibles. Pray. And more than that, be regular in fellowship with believers. Bring yourself to corporate worship at almost any cost. I would tell you, climb any wall and crawl over 
broken glass if you have to, to hear the word of God proclaimed in the context of the fellowship of believers and to participate in the Lord's Supper with believers because that is the supreme means of grace by which God works in us to grow us in holiness. I know that likely all sounds heavy and, and not particularly uplifting, but if you're in Christ, you should be encouraged. If you're in Christ, you should be encouraged. The point here is not that you earn your salvation. I don't want you to hear that. The point is that you're saved. Now strive to live like it. And his commands and warnings are not burdensome to believers. They're not burdensome for redeemed people because we know we're not working to earn forgiveness and redemption. We know through these commands and warnings, we know that we've already received forgiveness and redemption. And now we're keeping these laws, listening to these warnings as redeemed believers in Christ, as children of our Father. For the redeemed spirit and dwelt Christian, the law of God, the warnings of God, sound like the voice of a loving Father, commanding His children not to stray away from home, for it's not safe there. The smiling embrace of Dad is not found out there. And so the question is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Is your trust in him showing up and delighting his commands and his warnings and striving for holiness? If not, today is the day of salvation. Now's the time of repentance. Turn to him in faith and be saved. If you don't turn to him, you only are left with the fearful expectation of judgment. But if you do, forgiveness of sins, life, and joy forevermore. Believers, let us not grow weary in well-doing, but let us remember that we have a Father who loves us, loves us everlastingly and a Lord who saves us to the uttermost. And may we fear more than anything else losing our communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May we fear that more than anything else. They would join the hymn writer of Come Thou Fountain, the last verse, one that's seldom sung. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. We pray, Father, we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit in such a way that we would hear your commands and your warnings as those of our loving Father, keeping us close to him. Father, help us to not trust our own hearts, but to strive for holiness for without which no one will see you. Help us to strive for peace, to not be weary in well-doing, to be constant in meeting with other believers and exhorting one another, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, to be constant in being under the preaching of the word, to be constant in reading and of the word and prayer. 
Father, if there are any here who don't know your Son, may they turn to him in faith and so be saved. If there are any here, Father, who are in some temporary period of rebellion, Father, I pray they would heed well the warning and repent and be restored in their communion with you. May you use this as a means of grace to keep them in your Son for their everlasting salvation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.